All right, we're going to continue on in our Revelation series. It is so good to be here today. Man, put on your resting blessed face. RBF. Ready to lean in? Man, God has been moving, and it's been a really great weekend. Just the, we're just, I think this is a weekend where God is just, his spirit's been um, unusually active, and, and we're, we're all for that. If you are just joining us, we are in a series, a teaching series, where we've just been verse by verse preaching through and teaching through the, the, the book of Revelation. And it's, a, it's an often misunderstood, misapplied, misconstrued book. And we have been just taking our time going through this book, uh, asking the Lord to, to reveal truth to us. Because we've learned over the last few weeks that the book of Revelation, the word revelation comes from the word apocalypsis, which where we get the English word apocalypse from. And we've learned that apocalypse doesn't mean what we thought it meant. Most of us thought the apocalypse meant like the end of the world, destruction and wrath. And, and, and full disclosure, the book of Revelation covers some pretty gnarly things. Some of that stuff's in there. But the word apocalypse actually means the... Oh, wow. Y'all are blessing your pastor's heart right now. You've been paying attention. It means the unveiling. It means the removal of an obstruction that God's trying to show us some things. And so we've been learning that he's showing us some things about his son, Jesus. He is the revelation and he is the light that illuminates all things. The one that is truth and leads to all truth. That's who Jesus is. But we've been also realizing that this book is to help us see ourselves, see the church and see the times. And so we have been diving into this book week by week, looking at what Jesus has to say to us here and now. We have decided and determined that if God said something, it was true, it is true, and it always will be true, correct? And so that's the same for this book. We've been asking God in real time, what do you have to say, not just to your church in the first century in Asia, but what are you speaking to King's Church here in Atlantic Canada in 2020? And so we've been asking those questions. And we've come to this part in the book, just to catch those of you up who haven't been with us. We've come to this part in the book where Jesus has been addressing or writing letters, specific letters to seven specific churches in the province, the Roman province of Asia. It's now modern day Turkey. And he's targeted seven what we know as banner churches. And each of these seven churches have specific things that Jesus has been speaking to them. He gives them encouragement and correction both so that they will hear what he has to say, hear what the Spirit's saying to the churches, and they will apply it and they will receive grace and peace. That is the purpose of this book. And so we've been looking at it and we've realized one more thing before we jump in today that these letters to these seven churches weren't just letters at a specific time for a specific church, but they were letters for all times for the church, correct? And so we're allowing God to speak to us in these letters. In the first week, we looked at the letter to the church in Ephesus, and we found out they had a problem called legalism that they were doing the right things without the right heart, that they had the right actions with the wrong motivations. And we talked about religion and how really the right action directed at the wrong intention is actually leads to destruction and that we need to actually have our heart chasing after God in, in all the things that we do. And so we talked about restarting our hearts. And then last week, we saw the letter to the church in Smyrna. This was the second letter that Jesus sent and he's encouraging a group of people who are going through a very difficult time in their lives. And some of you were so encouraged last week because you're in a season of pressure and, and kind of the fiery trial. And we heard what Jesus had to say to those who were going through that. This week we come to something slightly different from both of those. And I actually think it has a lot to say to a lot of us here in 2020 in Western society. And we're going to look at the letter to the church in Pergamum. 
Let's do what we've been doing before we jump in and let's read this out loud together. Those of you who are just catching us, we've been reading this book out loud together because we believe there's a triple blessing. It says in chapter one that blessed is the one who reads these words out loud, hears these words read and obeys these words. And so we've been saying, I'll get some of that. So we've been reading this out loud together. You ready? You going to help me? All right, here we go. This is Jesus speaking. Verse 12, he says, write this letter to the angel of the church in Pergamum. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne, yet you have remained loyal to me. You refuse to deny me even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. All right, now this is intense. So Jesus comes and he first gives this church in Pergamum a word of encouragement. Now, to help us understand what Jesus has to say, we need to just get a little bit of the landscape of Pergamum. We need a little ancient history lesson. So again, this was written in 95 AD. This was in modern, what's modern day Turkey. And the city of Pergamum would have been not just the third largest city, but it would have been the most influential city in all of Asia. Pergamum was the capital city. It was the city where the Roman proconsul, the governor, actually had his authoritative seat. This was where Rome had its central presence in Asia. This was a big deal. This was the, this was the Washington, D.C. of the area. This is where the political epicenter had its reign, right there in Pergamum. Not only do we know that it was a, a political hotbed, it was also, as were most cities in those days, a place of diverse religious authorities. There was obviously the Roman authority that was not just a political thing. It was a religious thing that that the Caesar was actually worshipped as a god. And so there was Caesar worship there. There was also Greek worship. There was a large temple dedicated to Zeus. Uh, There was also uh, Jews in the synagogue. This is actually a picture of of today, modern day ruins of Pergamum. Uh, This is what it kind of used to look like. This was was known as the, the throne of Zeus, this whole hillside. And there was many temples dedicated to many different things. There was uh, the temple of Caesar, the temple of Zeus. There was the synagogue. There was a very large library. Pergamum was also the intellectual capital. This was where all the great top thinkers in Asia would reside. They had one of the largest libraries in ancient history. Uh, their library, along with the library in Athens and the library in Alexandria, were what led all thought in the ancient world. And so this is a significant place, Pergamum. This was a place that was kind of the clash of the great ideologies and powers and philosophies of the ancient world right there in Pergamum. If we were to try to kind of understand it today, I would say it would be a little bit of like a mixture of Washington, D.C., with a little bit of like the, the, the mind and the intellect and the, the bourgeois of Paris and, and London. And then you throw the kind of the religious component. We'll, we'll sprinkle a little Jerusalem and a little Mecca in there. And then all of a sudden you understand what the backdrop of Pergamum is like. It would have been intense to live there. A lot of pressure, a lot of ideologies, a lot of very smart people, a lot of very impressive people, celebrity, a lot of politicians. This is kind of the, if you can get your head around that, that's Pergamum. And Jesus says to them, I know the place where you live. So I know all about Pergamum, Jesus says. He says, Pergamum, he doesn't affirm the city. Now he's not rebuking them. Don't get this wrong. He's not chastising them for living there, but he says Pergamum is the place where Satan has his throne. 
That's pretty heavy. Can you imagine we receive a letter to the angel of the church in St. John where Satan has his throne? Can you imagine? That's intense language. Like Satan rules your city, Jesus says. That is really heavy stuff. And so he says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, where there are authoritative, destructive powers running rampant. You live there, Jesus says. And I, re I recognize that. And he watched this. He affirms them. Look what he says. He says, yet you have remained loyal to me. In other words, you weren't influenced by the smart people with their lofty ideas and ideologies. They didn't convince you because they sounded so eloquent with their new hot philosophy. They, they didn't make you conform into their ideology. When you were told to bow before Caesar under threat of martyrdom, you didn't. You didn't deny me publicly. You stood for me, Jesus says, even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred. Now, the word witness and martyr, this is actually the first time you see these things together, and there's a lot of language things that connect those two, but Antipas, Christian history records, was martyred in the city of Pergamum. He was a leader in the church. In fact, not so fun fact, he was brought out into the center of the city by the Romans because he, like last week, which we saw in Smyrna, refused to, to hail Caesar as Lord. You can't say Caesar is Lord and Jesus is Lord. There can only be one Lord. That's problematic when Caesar says, you have to call me Lord or die. And so just like people in, in Smyrna, in Pergamum, they're facing it as well. And Jesus says, you have been successful even when you saw some of your one of your brothers, Antipas, martyred. Christian history records that he was put in the brazen bull. Anybody know what the brazen bull is? You should be glad you don't. It's a, I'm going to tell you what it is. It's, a, it's this big torture execution device that the Romans had. They would actually, it was this giant metal bull they would bring out and they'd put a human inside of it and they would heat it from below and you would basically be cooked alive. That's how Antipas died. And the church in Pergamum watched it. Jesus says, Antipas was martyred among you. And he said, you refuse to bow the knee, even at risk now, he's absolutely commending them. Here's the praise he gives them. He actually comes to them first with a word of encouragement and a word of praise. And he says, you resisted. You stood. You withstood the extreme pressure to conform. You, you withstood the extreme pressure to bow the knee and hide your faith and deny me. Even when Caesar is pressing down upon you, you stood there and said, I will not deny Jesus. I will not deny him. He says, deny me before, before all men and I will deny you before my father. And I'm more afraid to deny him than I am to deny Caesar. And he, he said, you did that. He's, you know, he commends them for being people who like Paul, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God and the salvation for all who believe. And I don't care who knows that I'm a Christian. I'm boldly standing here saying, I follow Jesus. And Jesus is saying, you counted the cost and you stood firm. And he commended them for it. How many know it costs you sometimes to be public about your faith? Have you followed Jesus long enough to find that out? It'll cost you. Some of you have experienced that. You've experienced it in, in the marketplace. Maybe it cost you a certain business deal because somebody knew that you wouldn't operate that way because you're a Christian. And so they avoided you. Maybe it cost you in your family because you used to be able to talk a certain way around people. And now that you met Jesus, it's complicated your relationships and it's cost you something. There is a challenge out there in front of us to, to stand and not deny Jesus, isn't there? 
And I'll tell you something. This is, you can just keep this for free. If you haven't woken up to this already, you need to. You live in a country, although we are blessed to be Canadian, we live in a country where our beliefs are seen as increasingly hostile. And it costs you even now to say, I follow Jesus. I have been called a bigot. I have been, I have been accused of hate speech. Because we stand on, on this word, it doesn't necessarily go with the ideologies of the day. And Jesus commends the church in Pergamum saying, you counted the cost, you stared in the face of, of fear, and you said, I will not back down. You were not crushed by the weight of, of, of pressure. And he blesses them for it. He blesses them for it. And he says, you withstood extreme external pressure and you didn't back down. And so he goes on. Now, now this, changes, this changes here. Look what he says. He says, but I have a few complaints against you. He says, you tolerate among you some of those whose teaching is like that of Balaam. Let me just pause here really quick. You tolerate. Let me make sure we all know what the word tolerate means because I don't think we know anymore in, in our modern day. Tolerance is not affirmation. Tolerance is not approval. Tolerance is the acceptance of a presence. It's to, it's to allow to, so something to be present. Are we, are we all up to speed on that now? Because I think that's, that word's been hijacked in the last maybe five years or so, maybe 10 years even. Tolerance now means you actually have to affirm my beliefs or affirm my presence, and that's not what tolerance is. To tolerate something is to allow the presence or the existence of something. We got it? So Jesus says, here's your issue, Pergamum. Here's the thing. Here's the complaint I have against you, the complaints. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. So Jesus now, he moves. He, he, he affirms them. But now he calls them on something that's highly concerning to him. He says, I have this against you. Now, hear the language there. That isn't, that isn't nice and neat and tidy. It's not. It's, it's, it's very serious. He says, this is your problem. You tolerate the Nicolaitans. You tolerate those who think like Nicolaitans. Now, this begs the question, who are the Nicolaitans? We've been seeing them pop up the last few weeks, haven't we? And now we see them again. And so who are the Nicolaitans? Well, I did vast research on this. And the, the unanimous consensus from the foremost biblical scholars on planet Earth throughout Christian history is, uh, we don't know. <laughs> they don't actually know who the Nicolaitans really were. They think it was obviously perhaps it was an actual sect or an actual type of, of a group of people. We aren't actually sure who they were. What we do know is what they represent. And this is really the heart of what Jesus is getting at is, is, is what they were all about or what that type of thinking or what that type of behavior was all about. And Jesus shows us right here. He actually qualifies it. Did you catch it? He said, you tolerate some among you, some Nicolaitans, whose teaching or the way that they think or the way that they operate is like Balaam who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. Now let me just bring us up to speed on who that is. If you know your Old Testament, who is Balaam and Balak? Balaam was a prophet in the Old Testament, not a prophet of God, not a prophet of Israel. He was actually a, a wicked man. He was, per, perhaps you'd call him like a sorcerer or a diviner. He was a person that this guy 
Balak hired. Balak was the king of Moab. And the king of Moab was quite concerned that Israel was coming up on his territory and he was worried that we're going to lose it. And so he tried to cook up a way to destroy the children of Israel. So he hires this prophet Balaam. And he says, Balaam, I need you to help me destroy Israel. I need you to call down curses upon them or they're going to, they're going to take over our land. It seems like everything they do, all they do is win, 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 no matter what. And your hands go up like Moses and they stay there. No, sorry, it's my third, third time this weekend. So he says, we need to come out with a plan. And so Balaam is hired by Balak and Balak has Balaam call down curses upon the children of Israel. But guess what happened? Nothing. He couldn't curse Israel. He couldn't bring down destruction upon them. It seemed to him as though this, this people of Israel, these people of God, had some type of covering over them that just kept his arrows and kept his advances and kept his curses from ruining them. Isn't that good news? Isn't it good to know sometimes that as a child of God, I have protection, I have a covering? The Bible says that no weapon formed against us will prosper, that he actually, he goes before us, that, that he leads us in triumphal procession, that he is our shield, that he, he is a shield about us. We believe that, don't we? God protects us. Even though sometimes we go through difficulty, we talked about it last week, I know this to be true, that God chooses what I go through and the enemy cannot take me down. That greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. And that is, what, that is what Balaam found out. He's like, there is a force fighting for them that is more powerful than what I can bring against them. And so he says, we need to come up with another plan because bringing down pressure upon them is just not going to win. There's more for them and there's more in them than what I can bring against them. And someone needs to hear that today, that there's more fighting for you than what's coming against you. You need to know that. There's more for you than that there is against you. And so Balaam and Balak, they come up with a plan B. And the plan B was this. If we can't get them from the outside and we can't bring down curses upon them, then we need to get a plan that does something on the inside. And so what they do is they start to, to introduce food, sacrifice to idols. So that what's that? It's idolatry. It's this divided heart. It's allowing the presence of some other deity or some other authority to have a place in their lives. So he talks about that. And sexual immorality or immorality. Doing things that disobey the clear commands of God. And so Balaam and Balak, they brought disaster upon the children of Israel, not through being people, not through bringing down uh, destruction upon them, but bringing decay inside of them. And that's how he destroyed them. And Jesus is saying, he's saying the same way that idolatry and immorality crept inside of the children of Israel, it's happening to you and you don't realize you are compromised you're compromised. You think that you're strong because you don't, you're, you're willing to die for me, but let's talk about how you live for me. You think that you're strong and you think that you're doing good because you're not ashamed to go to work and say, I follow Jesus, or you're not ashamed to go to church every weekend or share the sermon online. That's great, but let's talk about who you are on the inside. That's what Jesus is getting at. He's saying you're tolerating, you're tolerating the presence of, of small g gods. And you're allowing yourself to, to drift off into immorality and you think you've got a handle on it. You think that it's okay, but I'm telling you, this is going to ruin you. It's going to absolutely destroy you. You tolerate the Nicolaitans. Here's your problem. You're compromised. 
The church in Pergamum were the compromised church. They were the people who, although on the outside they were following Jesus or they were people who weren't ashamed to follow Jesus, on the inside they had been deceived and they were allowing compromise to come in and corrupt them and it was slowly eating them from the inside out. That's what was going on in Pergamum and this is what Jesus targets. He says, that is going to ruin you. That is going to destroy you. You have been deceived and you are heading towards destruction. Do you realize like the pattern of sin? It it all comes through deception. Think about this. Jesus gives us a clue. He says, I know where you live. The place where who? Satan has his throne. Now, what do you know about Satan? If you look back in in your Bible, here's what we know. Satan rarely ever is successful. In fact, I don't, I don't even think it's fair to call him a destroyer. He's not really a destroyer. What is he? He's a deceiver. He's someone who twists you, twists your thinking into going into a place that's going to bring destruction upon you. Satan doesn't have the authority to destroy us. He, what he does is he tries to deceive us in such a way that causes us to go and to compromise ourselves and open ourselves up to ruin. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying there are thoughts coming in. There are teachings and mindsets that are leading to behaviors that are destroying you from the inside out. And you think it's fine, but you have been deceived. You've, you've justified it. You've tolerated it. You've done the work in your mind and you think that this is okay. But I'm telling you, you are exposed and vulnerable. You have compromised and you are compromised. This is, this is the backdrop in the church in Pergamum. And he says, you need to realize how deceptive and destructive sin is. James helps us understand sin a little bit. James says it like this. Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. That's the track. That's how sin works itself out. You see, we all have normal, natural, God-given appetites. Sin finds its way in when we choose to satisfy an urge or an appetite with something that is not God. This is why idolatry and immorality and sexual immorality are all connected. It all has to do with appetites. It all has to do with desires. And what James is saying is after your desire has conceived, you've been enticed by the wrong thing. And after you've gone after it, what happens is it gives birth to sin. What is sin? Sin is the destruction and the decay and the dysfunction that comes from severance with God. God is the source of life. And sin, when we are disconnected from God, we are absent of life. That's what sin ultimately is. And so he's saying sin comes in when you have disobeyed or severed yourself from alignment with God and you've aligned with some false God that allows sin to come in. And when sin grows, it gives birth to, say it, sin sin leads to death. The path of obedience before God leads to life. And the path of sin leads to death. That's that's what the Bible tells us. And Jesus is saying, you, Pergamum, are on that trail. You are being enticed. You are justifying the presence of idolatry. You're winking at it. You're tolerating it. You're tolerating immorality. You're allowing yourself to watch that show. You're allowing yourself to visit that site. You're allowing yourself to say those things about that person behind their back. You're winking at things that I've called wrong. And he's calling them on it. 
Like this, this would have been pretty jarring, I would think. And he tries to tell them, I'm telling you this not because I, I dislike you. I'm telling you this because I love you and I want life for you. See, Jesus is the one that came that you would have life. The devil is the one that is trying to rob, kill, steal, and destroy. And he says, I'm coming to you to tell you you are on this track uh, and you are on a track of ruin. Here's another way to understand sin. This is Genesis chapter 4. This is uh, God speaking to Cain. He says, if you do what is right... Will you not be accepted? So talking about that alignment thing. Life and blessing flows from God as we align ourselves with him in faith. And then look what he says though. But if you do not do what is right, if you don't align yourself with me, he goes, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. So sin is crouching at your door. What does that mean? How many of you know that sin has its way of like, you, you, think, you think you have it under control, and then all of a sudden you get bit. Has anybody ever experienced that in your life? Anybody ever like just been bound to an addiction? I know we got folks all, all through our church that are getting freedom. They're going to CR. And one of the things we're finding though is that, that no one just wakes up an alcoholic. There was a bit of a process. No one wakes up a gambling addict. There was a bit of a process. And you thought you had it under control. And then all of a sudden, long after you're done with sin, sin is not done with you. And that's what the Bible's telling us. It says it's crouching at your door. The language here, the Hebrew for crouching, it actually, it's speaking about like a, a cat. It's speaking about a like a, a lion or a tiger jumping or crouching, getting ready for its moment. Has anybody ever seen that video? It's a video online. There's these two guys in India riding on an elephant. And there's this, uh, go Google it when you get home. It's fascinating. There's this whole, just wide open grass plain. It looks like nothing's there. There's no problem, right? And then out of nowhere, you hear this growl and literally this lion. That's a screenshot. I just, I just saved it. Literally, this lion jumps up and just takes a swipe at one of the guys. Takes, takes part of his arm right clean off. It's, wow, it's wild. Um, I think he was fine. No animals were hurt in the... I, actually, I, I'm pretty sure they shot it. Anyway, it's real life, y'all. i shoot the thing too. Anyway, if you took my arm off. But he's saying, he's saying sin crouches at your door. You ever seen, you ever, anybody own a kitten or a cat? I mean, they're not deadly, but you see... I got a bunch of people like, no, no way, not in my house. Hey, I got two cats and I'm not ashamed to say it. I am not ashamed of my felines. Anyway... You see them, they like, they crouch down and they sort of wait for their moment. And they like get that, that, that look with their eyes, right? And they, they wait for their moment. And then just at the right moment, they pounce. And this is what the Bible tells us about sin. Sin, it, it, it just, it waits there and you think that it's fine. That's the problem. That's the problem in Pergamum. They thought they didn't have a problem. They thought it's no big deal. Yeah, okay, we've got some other ideologies, We've got some competing philosophies. Okay, yeah, once in a while I dabble in that, or once in a while this happens, or once in a while I go see her. Yeah, okay, I'm texting my old girlfriend, or yeah, okay, whatever. They're, they're, they're winking at it, and Jesus says, you don't realize that there is death crouching before you, and it is going to take you out. Has anybody ever lost a loved one? Like, like you, they, their life was ruined because of some sin or behavior? And it just, it's, it's, it's interesting as, as you, you think everything's fine and then boom, ruin hits. And that's what Jesus is speaking to. And so look what he says. He gets very serious here. So he says, you tolerate the Nicolaitans. You tolerate idolatry, divided loyalties. 
You tolerate immorality, sexual immorality, disobedience, aligning yourself with, with things that, that are, aren't of God. And then look what he says. So you need, here's what you need to do. You need to repent of your sin. Do you know that th this is an okay word to say in church? We don't like this word anymore. And we don't like this word anymore. But Jesus says it to his church. And we are, have already agreed this, this, this was true, is true, and always will be true. And Jesus says to his church, repent of your sin. He calls it what it is. He calls sexual immorality sin. He calls a divided heart sin. He calls defiance and disobedience sin. And he says, repent. Not in my house, Jesus says. Not in my kids. Not in my people. He's calling you out of that. He's calling that out of you. He says, repent of your sin or watch this. He says, or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now that's, that's intense stuff. Does that sound like a threat? It, it is. It is, a, it is a threat. He says, repent of your sin or I will come to you suddenly and I will use the sword of my mouth. Now, now in... In Pergamum, like we already said, this was a Roman hotbed. This was a place where the, where the politicians held power. And the, the, the Roman proconsul, the governor, actually had a seat of authority there. And the proconsul was one of a few people in the Roman world that have what was called the power of the sword. He could at any time, because you rubbed him the wrong way, say, uh, you're going to die today. Execute him. He actually had the power of the sword that he could bring down judgment upon you at any given time. And so when Jesus is using this, this, this analogy about the sword of his mouth and that he can bring that down upon them, they understood what he was talking about, that he had the authority to come in and say, no more, not today, that ends here with the sword of his mouth. But, but get this, the sword, although can be an instrument of destruction, at the same time, it can also be what? An instrument of salvation and liberation, can it? The same sword that can strike down the enemy is also the sword that can cut us free and free us from bondage. Or even think about, think about the small little swords that the surgeons use now called scalpels. Able to cut out growths and cut out tumors and cut out cancer and remove things that cause what? Harm to the body. And Jesus, he offers two things here. There is an or. There's, here's your options. Repent, which is what? Turn to me, present me your sin so that I can deal with it or keep running and, and reap destruction because that's the, that's the end game here. He's offering them a new start and he's offering them cleansing and healing. But make no mistake about this, and I feel like I need to press on this for a minute just before we're done here today. Jesus hates sin. And I wanna, I'm aiming that word at myself here too. I'm not, I'm not hitting anybody over the head, right? Like that's not what I'm doing. Let's, let's, just, let's just be his kids right now and be the church right now. You need to hear this. Jesus hates sin. And you read through the, through the Bible and you hear the, about the wrath of God and the vengeance of God and the justice of God and how he pours out wrath upon sin. And I'm going to tell you something, spoiler alert, when we get a few pages on in Revelation, I mean, it gets gnarly. I mean, bowls of wrath poured out on sin, destruction, complete and utter annihilation when it comes to anything that is opposed to the king and his kingdom and his goodness and glory going out on the earth. It is intense. But get this, if you're struggling with this idea of why God has wrath, think about love. 
Have you ever actually been in love? You have a spouse or you have children. This really didn't start making sense to me until I got married and then had kids and I understood that, you know what? Love actually demands vengeance. That because I love my kids, I can actually get angry. There are things that can incite rage in me. Things that would rob them of life, things that would corrupt their well-being, that, those things I actually get outraged at. I actually get furious at. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? This is what Tozer meant when Tozer was talking about sin. A.W. Tozer said, God hates sin the same way a parent hates the disease that is taking out their child. Anything that corrupts and decays and robs kids of, robs his children of the life that he has given them, any, anything, anything that is thieving of your life, God hates it. And this is why Jesus says, repent of your sin or I will come against you suddenly with the sword of my mouth. You need to turn. Here's the protocol. Here's what you do with sin. And let me tell you something. How you respond to sin shows what you think about Jesus. What you do with the fact of your sin What I do with my sin shows how I really think about Jesus. If I don't repent, I don't think it's that big a deal to him. That's incorrect. He clearly says, this matters to me. I'm pointing at it. I'm showing you. I'm saying that thing, that idolatry, that immorality, that has got to stop. Cut it out or be cut down is what he said. So if I continue on, I'm operating under the assumption that either A, he doesn't care, Or most of us, this is where most of us go, if I hide it and I'm scared to take it to him, it shows that I don't think he's good. It shows that I don't think he's capable of taking my brokenness and taking my dysfunction and removing it from me. And like the Bible says, changing my heart of stone and giving me a heart of flesh to give me a heart that beats after his heart, to give me a, a mind that thinks like his mind, to, give me, to, to satisfy my appetites. If I run from Jesus with, because I've sinned, it shows that I don't know who he really is. The Bible says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. What do you do with your sin? And Jesus says, here's what you do. You repent. You turn to me. What is repentance? To repent, the language is, it's actually to turn and to look in an opposite direction and move in that direction. Jesus is saying, turn to me. Present me that dysfunction. The same way if you had a growth on your shoulder and you thought it was cancerous, you would go into the doctor and you would present that area to them and say, we need to deal with that. Can you get your knife? This is what Jesus is getting at. He's saying, present this to me. Rid yourself of that. And then what is he and then, and then you got to understand this. Look what he says. He says, to everyone who is victorious, I will give. Now, let me just pause here. What does it imply when he says to everyone who is victorious? What does that imply? That, that does imply that you can be victorious, and that's, that's worth talking about. It also implies what, though? That there is, a, there is a conflict, that there's a challenge, that there is struggle, that there is, dare I say, work involved. He's actually saying, turn to me, turn to me, recognize what it is, let's call it for what it is, that's cancer, that's wrong, you texting her is wrong, you calling him is wrong, you drinking that is wrong, you taking that stuff is wrong, let's call it for what it is, and then he says, turn to me, let me deal with it, and we're going to be victorious, and, and, and he basically says, it's time to retaliate. 
It's time to actually like wage war against these things that rob you. What's he saying to the church in Pergamum? He's saying like, recognize the creep, recognize the corruption, rid yourself of it and close the gate. You have let down some standards. You've let some fences go to ruin and now there are wolves in the, in the inside and they're about to bite you. And he says, rid yourself of that, rebuild the fences. We live in a time that, that really doesn't like the word, you know, discipline. We don't love that, do we? We frankly live in a time that we get talking about fences or structures in our lives, that think, lines that we would draw and say, do this and don't do that. We live in a time that would call that oppressive. Fences are oppressive. Not necessarily. If you realize you live in a world that's got wolves and it's got like the enemy that prowls around like a roaring lion waiting to devour you, all of a sudden that fence that you might call oppressive, I call protection. Like, I think we've duped ourselves. Like, we all think that we're Julie Andrews running out in the Andes. The hills are alive with the sound of... Y'all, there are wolves about to eat Julie. <laughs> That's the world we live in. And what Jesus is saying, he's saying, like, you need to put up some fences. You need to raise some standards. You let go of some standards. You started to say, yeah, you know what, maybe that is okay. And you lowered some standards. He says, raise those fences back up. Put some lines in your life and say, you know what? I will not do that. Not in my life anymore. Not in my house. Not on my phone. Not on my TV. Not in my mind. Not out of my mouth. You need to actually start drawing some lines and saying, as for me and my life and my house, I will serve the Lord. I will not delude myself and deceive myself into thinking that this is wrong. This is how I'm going to be. And so Jesus invites them to wage war, to actually retaliate, to actually push back. You know, some of you are, are, are wondering, well, you're talking about work. You're talking about, you know, what about grace? Y'all, this is grace. You know, um, one of my favorite authors, a guy named Dallas Willard, once said, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Grace is opposed to thinking that you can do things. This is the problem of the church in Ephesus. You remember? They were doing things to try to make God in their debt. That's wrong. But doing things out of honor to God and doing things, I'm just going to be simply obedient because God said so. Making that effort, waging war against the fact that all of us are prone to sin, all of us are prone to wander, and realizing I have this propensity in me, maybe I can't be a person that just has a drink. Look, let me just say it. Look, look, you've heard me preach on substances. If you haven't, go back and check it out. I did a whole talk on it. But let me just say, there are some of you that cannot handle alcohol and you just need to cut it out and it shouldn't be in your house at all. Because it brings destruction. It's called wisdom. This is about wisdom, not legalism. It's about recognizing. Like some of you, like guys, gals, I don't know who it is. You just can't be on a computer behind a closed door. Because you're, you're, you're prone to it. And don't deceive yourself into thinking, I've got it now. I'm on a three-day streak. 
This is the seriousness that Jesus is speaking to. And he's saying, like, recognize these are wolves. This, this, this enemy is trying to rob you of life. And so you need to put up some space in your life, some barriers in your life, some framework in your life that actually protects you from disaster. And it calls God first and foremost. And it says that I'll have no other gods before you. Even if that means fighting the fight of faith and saying, you know what? I, I, guess, I guess I can't be on social media because all I do is covet. Or all I do is, is talk to the wrong people or, or, or think about the wrong things. Or maybe you can't go on the internet. I don't know what your thing is. But here's the question. Like, like what do you tolerate? What do you tolerate that Jesus says, I am holy intolerant of that what do you wink at what's okay what has permission to exist in your world that doesn't have permission to exist in his that's the question Jesus is asking to the church in Pergamum he's saying you know what I honor the fact that you would die for me but I want to see if you're going to be the type of person who would live like me and live for me will you actually be simply obedient do you know that God, is, he calls us to obedience. He actually calls us to be holy. The Bible says without holiness, we will not see the Lord. What's holiness? Holiness actually means to be cut apart, set apart, to allow the word of his mouth, the word of the spirit to separate, to remove the junk and to take the life. That's what Jesus is getting at. He says, you need to retaliate. One more thing and then I'm gonna pray. Look what he says. This is, this is how he ends his message. So he, he calls them out. And let me just ask the question to some of you here today. Like, what are you tolerating? Here's another question, maybe. Some of you think back. Maybe you're not in the same place you were with Jesus, and, and you know it. Think back to a time where you had an encounter with God. Maybe it was the first day you were saved. Think back to the days and the weeks right after that. What were some of the things that you were doing naturally in your relationship with Jesus that you stopped doing? What are some standards that you let fall? Or maybe flip it. What are some things that back then you would have never done or never said or never watched or never participated in that today you will? That's one of the ways we can spot our hearts being just, just corrupted and our standards being lowed, lowered. And Jesus, he offers this invitation, but look what he says. He says, to everyone who's victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven. Now, manna is a reference to the Old Testament when he gave, when God provided supernatural bread for the children of Israel to eat, to, to, to satisfy their appetite in the wilderness. So manna is speaking to the appetites. Remember, idolatry and immorality are issues of what? They're issues of how we satisfy our appetites. And so Jesus is saying, to everyone who fights this fight of faith, I will give the manna the secret manna, the special manna that's hidden away in heaven, the stuff that your heart is actually looking for and I have, I will give it to you. This is the promise he gives and look what he says. And he says, and I will give to each, of, each one a white stone and on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. Now a white stone that no one understands except the one who receives it. What's he talking about? He's, he's talking about reward. He's talking about the fact that Jesus never calls you to a war that he won't give you the weapons to win. 
Jesus never calls you to a battle that he won't fight with you and for you and bring you on to victory, but you have got to pick up the sword. You have got to actually learn how to war and fight the fight of faith. And he gives us the keys to victory right here is two things. He said what? He said, I will give you the manna. So that's the truth. He's saying the fight of faith is coming down to, the, to it's coming down, it comes right down to this. It's, do I believe that this thing or this substance, or this someone can satisfy me better than he can. That is the totality of the fight with sin. It comes right down to that. Do I believe that the drink do I believe that getting accepted into that crowd? Do I believe that, that sleeping with them? Do I believe that checking her out? Do I believe that that is a better meal for my soul than he is? That's the fight of sin. And Jesus says, if you remain faithful to me, I will satisfy you with the thing that you are really looking for. And look what he says. He says, he promises acceptance. I would change this word to access, actually. What's this whole white stone business? He says, I'll give you a white stone with your name engraved upon it. Now, there's a bunch of theories as to what the white stone meant in first century Asia. There's a bunch of things that, that white stones meant. But one of the primary ones is that if you were ever invited, like think about the the political hotbed that it was. Like if you were ever invited to the governor's ball, or maybe it was a, it was a meeting of all the intellectual who's who, and somehow you're smart enough to get invited to that prestigious event. Or maybe you were invited to some kind of religious gathering, some special gathering where there was this amazing festivity. You know the kind of thing that you really want, you know, you want to know, you want to be invited to? You want access to? I wish I was part of that. I wish I got to partake in that. Whenever there was a, a special gathering, oftentimes one of the ways that you would be invited is you would be sent a white stone with your name engraved on it. And then when you received it, you knew, oh, I get to go to that. And when you showed up at the door, you would, you would show the white stone and it would give you access to come into this exclusive place. And so could it be that Jesus is speaking to this reality that I am giving you access. I have written your name on it, a name that only you and I even know. And he's saying, I am giving you access to the only feast, the only food that can ever actually and fully satisfy you. And I'm, I'm promising you that if you fight the fight of faith and you remain faithful to me, I am going to let you access. So it's in that moment when you're at the gym and you could be checking that person out and you're fighting that faith and you're choosing, you're saying, God, I, I I'm actually, I'm, I'm, I have the white stone and I'm choosing to, to receive you and to feed on you today. It's that time where, where you could say that bad thing, that slanderous, gossipy thing about that person and it's in that moment saying, God, today I'm choosing to not feast on how that feels. I'm choosing to draw a line and to honor you and to feast upon you. That's what Jesus is getting at. He's saying, will you be faithful to me and trust that when you do, you have access to what your heart really wants. So here's what I want to do. Ben, you can come back and you can, I'm going to pray here in a second. I just felt as though this was going to be a weekend where the Lord wanted to put, just like to point the sword at some areas of compromise in our lives.
some areas maybe where we've let our standards down, where we've started to fall short of the glory of God. Maybe there's some things that we have started doing or participating or viewing that, that if we were just honest for a minute with the spirit, realize that it grieves his heart. Maybe there's some things that we tolerate in our lives that he just, he's like, I do not tolerate that and I want better for you. Present that to me. And all weekend, it seemed as though the Holy Spirit has just been kind of washing over us, calling us to just to, to release and remove some, some areas of, of compromise in our lives and to allow him to, to not just remove it, but to put grace in that space in our lives and to sew us up and to heal us. That's, he's not just the one who removes the issues. He actually gives us life where there was death and strength where there was weakness. He, he does that. And all weekend, it seems as though he's been putting his finger and giving us the gift of repentance. Do you know repentance is a gift? It takes the Holy Spirit to show you the weight of your sin. I could get up here and I could point and say, yeah, pornography's wrong. Yeah, infidelity's wrong. Yeah, idolatry's wrong. Yeah, you know what? Not taking your faith seriously is wrong. I could get up here and list all those things, but unless the Spirit in his gentle, firm way points on that in your heart, you'll never see it. But it seemed as though all weekend long, it's like the Spirit's been inviting us to the feast and pointing out some areas in our lives where we're just like, you know what? I need to, I need to actually call it for what it is. I need to draw a line. I need to say, God, would you do a, do a fresh work in me? Here's what I know to be true. God has promised glory in and upon our lives. And I believe there's glory that's destined for this part of Atlantic, of Canada. I, I believe there's gonna be a, a massive, you've heard me and I'm not afraid to say it, a massive wave of revival is gonna hit this region. I believe it with all my heart, but you know what has to happen? Before, before God unleashes that upon his church, he's gotta deal with issues of integrity inside of us. We have to be strong enough to carry the weight of increased glory. We have to have the type of character like Jesus that can actually stand in the glory. There is a weight to it. And so there's things I think that God wants to deal with us in us in this season before we step into the next. And so I don't know what, what your Nicolaitans are today. Maybe that's why we don't know who they are. Maybe we kind of needed this nebulous group, this catch-all group that just represents areas of compromise, areas where you've allowed false teaching, ideas that are clearly against what the scripture says, attitudes and actions and behaviors that are just outside of God's design. What are your Nicolaitans? What are the things that you are tolerating? And here's, here's what I wanted to do. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to ask that the Holy Spirit washes over us and reveals those things. And as he does those, I'm going to call you to repent. This is between you and God. I love how private it was. Like at first he's speaking to Pergamum, but then it's like he, he zooms in. He says, I'm calling you, Brent. I'm calling you and I've got a stone with your name on it that only me and you know. This is between you and Jesus. And you bring that to him. You, you, you hear him as he points on, as he points out certain things in your life. And as you, as you hear him, my, 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 my call to you today is that you'd respond. And here's, here's what I'm gonna get you to do as, as the band sings and as the spirit moves and as he puts his finger on an area, some of you need to repent of pornography and sexual immorality. 
Some of you are sleeping outside of marriage, sleeping with people outside of marriage. Call it for what it is. It's sin. It's wrong. The Bible says it's wrong. Some of you are gossiping, which grieves the heart of God. Some of you have divided loyalties. You know, you're a follower of Jesus, but really he doesn't have your full and undivided attention. I don't know what it is. But here's the call. As God highlights something to you, I'm going to invite you to get up out of your seat and do a walk of repentance and come down here to the front. And in these bowls here at the front of the stage, there are some white stones. And I'm going to invite you to take a white stone and to take it with you this week as a sign, not just of this work that you and this business that you did with God, but as a reminder that I'm invited to what is greater and nothing else will do. Nothing else will do in his place. I'm invited to the better feast and I will not be deceived into thinking that something or someone or some substance can satisfy me better than Jesus. And so I'm going to pray and I'm going to invite you to respond as he leads you. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask you right now, would you wash over us God, thank you that when you come, you speak conviction without condemnation. I thank you, Lord, that when you call out sin, it's for the purpose of life. Lord, I thank you that it's, it's, it's not you who wants to kill and steal and destroy. You're the, one that, you're the one that wants to set us free. You're the one that wants to set us free from sin and death. You're the one that wants to bring us to life and life more abundantly. And so, God, we just, we just say that in the atmosphere. And now we ask, we, we pray the prayer of David that says, Search me, search my heart, O God. See if there is any wicked way in me and show me it and then lead me in the way everlasting. And so, God, I pray for the... For the one here who's from the farthest away, Lord, to the one who just, just in this moment realizing there's areas of compromise you're calling them. The whole spectrum, God, I pray right now, Holy Spirit, would you speak to us? Would you call us to what is better? Call us to the one who is greater. Call us to what is real life. And I pray this right now in the name of Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit.